Thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We hope today's message encourages, inspires, and empowers you to follow after Jesus like never before. Before we get into today's teaching, I want to invite you to join us live at one of our services at any of our three campuses in West Virginia, or join us as we stream live online. For more information or to save your seat at one of our services, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. Now let's check out today's message. This Sunday, we are just going to talk about part one, and all I'm going to try to get you to see is acknowledgement, okay? So we're going to talk about good grief. Can grief be good? Can grief be a good thing? And, um, and so in order for grief to turn good, we have to go through a process. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's a process, okay? So it's not an event. And I want to clarify something to you. When I say grief, most likely you are thinking about the death of a loved one. You're thinking about someone dying in your life, but that is not necessarily all I am talking about. Absolutely, the things that we're going to talk about, especially next week when we look at how Jesus grieved and modeled um, good grief for us, um, I'm not necessarily talking just about losing a loved one, even though this can apply, especially next week. This week, I'm really talking about acknowledging grief that we wouldn't necessarily even be aware that we need to acknowledge. I'm talking about the fact that more of our behaviors that we don't like, more of who we are, is really tied to unprocessed grief than we realize. That perhaps some of the things that we don't like about ourselves, some of the the behavior that we're trying to stop, more of our issues really being rooted in unprocessed grief than we, we realize. Now, I have four children, and so my first couple of kids that I had, you know, I took everything personally in parenting. So when they threw a tantrum at two, I took it personal. It was a personal reflection of my failure as a parent, okay? Can anyone relate to this, okay, when you have your first? Like, you're embarrassed. You're thinking, what are they going to think of me? Um, and so thankfully, you outgrow that. You just keep having kids, and you figure it out, right? So, like, I just kept having babies, and then I realized, oh, they all do this, and this is like a normal stage. We're going to work through this. I'm going to teach them around this. And so by the fourth, I just started to have fun with it. And so my, my youngest, I, I taught her at, like, two when she threw a tantrum. Um, I taught her after she was done with her tantrum to say, I'm sorry that was irrational. And so she just says, I'm sorry, that was irrational. And so we've all had these kind of irrational moments. Anyone ever had an irrational moment, an overreaction to something, okay? Anybody ever embarrassed your own self with your behavior? Okay, I think it's a human condition. We look back. Anybody ever walked in on someone's irrational moment? Maybe at a restaurant and you're thinking, lady, this is not about your french fries being cold, right? Like there is more going on here than what you realize. And so I want to just kind of explore the idea, if you'll let me just see this, the splinter in your hand, just for, just for a minute, maybe there's something else going on behind some of our behaviors that embarrass us, or even our physiological responses that stump us when we have um, things happen physiologically, we have a visceral reaction to something, you're like, where is that coming from? You ever watched a movie or even a commercial and you don't know why you start crying? Okay, none of the men will admit it, but all the women will admit it, right? Like, you don't know why I'm not crying. I just got, you know, sweat in my eye, you know. You're crying over a commercial or a song on the radio, and you don't know why. Anyone ever felt immediate anxiety when something, and like your heart is racing, you get flushed, but there's nothing necessarily you should be afraid of in that moment. Maybe even had a panic attack. Has anyone suffered from insomnia, right? Okay, I had some huge bouts of insomnia. As a matter of fact, this whole process of what I'm about to share with you really is a very personal journey with me. It came from um, three, four years ago, just starting out of the blue to have 
debilitating insomnia that progressively got worse to where, matter of fact, that Arise book, you're welcome. It was written at three o'clock in the morning, just about every night for, for months where I couldn't sleep. I would even take Tylenol PM and could not go to sleep. I would be wide awake, could not go to sleep. Had no clue why I was having insomnia. I would wake up and just drenched in sweat. If you would ask me if I was stressed, I would say no. I did not feel stressed. I did not feel anxious. I did not feel anything. I had no clue where this was coming from. Coupled with a compulsive binge problem that I had really had since I was a little girl, as long as I could remember. And I began to get curious as to what is happening. Why am I doing this? And I went through all the steps of begging God, reading all the books, talking to counselors, talking to people, confessing my sin, accountability partner, anybody can relate, right? Okay. But where is this coming from? This physical reaction. I'm reading a book now. It's uh, an academic work. It's not Christian. It's a, a psychiatrist, a brilliant work. And it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And he talks about how our bodies are really keeping record, even in the genetic level of trauma that happens to us. A lot of times trauma we don't even remember. Trauma that predates things that we're even aware of and how our body is still aware that these things have happened and it comes out. And my personal belief, guys, is that we can't outrun grief. Really what grief is, it doesn't necessarily look like someone has died, but it could be I never had a childhood. I should have been allowed to be a child and I wasn't allowed to be a child. Grieving that a father left, that, uh, that there was not emotional connection with a mother or a father. There was a, a comparison between siblings. And then you can have the big T traumas like abuse and neglect. But I want you to think that grieving really any, um, any event in, our, the, in the course of our lives, in the history of our lives, that has never really truly been acknowledged and processed. Are you following me? And these, I want to show you how if we can start to just look at what is going on behind this behavior instead of just being embarrassed about it, that it's way more effective. You know, it's very human to avoid pain, okay? None of us like pain. And so a lot of times what we do when we start getting, it's a landmine that we get, go to step on. When we're triggered, we want to back away. This is why people will jerk their hand when you get close to that splinter. Or I start talking about these things and people get very tense and very annoyed or, or, or distant. It's because none of us like pain. Can I tell you the Lord's not trying to hurt you, okay? And anything that he's going to bring up, it's for the purpose of true healing. It's because it needs to be taken out or it can't truly be healed. And what I believe is that grief, you can only outrun grief so long it's going to catch up to you. It will chase you down and hunt you. And I see it all the time when people get to retirement and it's going to be the best days of their life because finally they've worked their whole lives to retire. But now that they've slowed down and stopped, there's a pervasive depression and loneliness and even anxiety because now they can't hide what happened to them long ago with busyness and with work. I've seen this even when you're away and you're in a big room. Have you ever felt really, really lonely in a large room of people? Where did that pervasive, ambiguous loneliness come from? That is a sign of unresolved grief. Even anger, grief can hide behind anger. Why are you so angry? What is, what is this reaction coming up? Why are you angry about this specifically? And so I want to talk to you about getting curious. So instead of being ashamed of your reactions, ashamed of your emotions, get curious. I'm a pretty curious, inquisitive girl, and I've been this way my whole life. I can remember always being the annoying kid that kept asking questions. Like, I never outgrew that stage. I'm still that way. I still ask lots of questions. 
in Bible college, we would have these three-hour blocks of teaching. That's a long time to have lecture, right? Okay, and you would think that, and so everyone was ready to be done, to go home, and I'm the nerd with my hand up, still asking questions after three hours of these blocks, um, you know, wanting to know more. And I was like, Melody, shut up. We want to go home. Now I have Google. So when I have a question, I just Google it, right? And I spend hours the others are watching TV in my house, and I'm reading, like, medical journals. Like, I just want to know. I want to know all about it. And so I love that really I got this inquisitive nature from God. Have you ever noticed how inquisitive God is? Like, how many questions he asks people throughout the scripture? It's pretty fascinating. He starts all the way in Genesis. He says, Adam, where are you? Right? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? Now, how many of you think God didn't know the answers to these questions? Okay, he's not asking questions. When he asks questions in the Bible, he's not asking them because he doesn't know. And he does this all throughout. Think about Cain. Cain, why are you so angry? Cain, why, why is your face downcast? Think about the woman at the, the well, Jesus' ability to ask questions. She's arguing about, you know, where do we worship here or there? And he's like, where's your husband? <laughs> like a boss, he asks these questions. All the way through, Jesus, do you want to be healed? What is it that you want from me? How long has this been happening? Now, why does the Lord ask questions? It's not because he doesn't know the answers. It's because he wants to know us. You see, God doesn't want to talk at you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants you and I to engage in dialogue. This is about relationship, relational equity over time. What does God want? What does he want? In the Garden of Eden, he shows us what his original intent was all along, to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to get to know us. I love Psalm 23. I think Psalm 23 is a picture of what God really wants. He wants to lead us beside still waters and restore our soul. He wants to take us on a journey. He wants to walk and talk with us. Any good, healthy relationship has dialogue. It's not a monologue. He could just come in and tell you what's in your heart, but I love his tenderness. Instead, he asks questions so that we can do an introspection, so that we can look at what's really going on here. And I think there's been so long in the body of Christ that we're so ashamed of our behavior. We're so ashamed of even, even lust. You know, in, we've kind of portrayed this idea that if lust comes knocking on your door, slam the door, shut the blinds, and hide. But I, what I'm saying is maybe there's a different approach to this that's more beneficial than just behavior modification. What if instead you unlock the door, open the door when it knocks and say, who are you, why are you here, and when did you first start showing up at my doorstep? What if we get curious? Why are you here? Why am I doing this? Where is this coming from? I love the question that the Lord asks Hagar, a servant girl who's crying in the wilderness, and he comes to her. She's running away from her mistress after she's been really abused by an authority figure, abused by someone who was supposed to represent God. And he finds this servant girl, and he says, Hagar, where have you come from, and where are you going? What profound questions. Where have you come from? And where are you going? God could have just come in and rescued her. God could have just come in and taken care of the situation. But in his love and his desire for true relationship, instead, he asks questions. And so this week, we're going to ask the same question. We're going to do those two questions. This week, it's where have you come from? And next week, where are you going? You know, you can't know where you're going until you know where you've come from. And we're going to look at where did some of this behavior come from? What is my behavior trying to tell me? 
What is my behavior? The behavior inside of me is alerting me to something else is going on here. What is my behavior trying to say? I did some ministry with a a woman not too long ago, and we were in a home. And when I was praying for her, I felt led to walk her through forgiveness to to release her offenders. And I asked her who she was, is there anybody she was offended with? And she said the people that she worked with. And she said, they just make me so angry. And I said, well, why do they make you so angry? Because they don't do their part. They don't do their part. And I said, well, why does that particular, that particular thing that they don't do their part make you, why that make you so angry? And she said, I don't know. And I said, when's the first time you remember feeling someone didn't do their part? I don't know. My mom, my mom didn't do her part. So I had to be the mom. I had to care for my siblings. I didn't get to be a child. My mom. And she broke. And it was amazing to walk her through, not just forgiving her coworkers, but really the original trauma that happened to her of really not being able to be a kid and to, to release her mom. And then to watch the anger towards her coworkers, not see, it, it, it dissolved. And suddenly, because it wasn't a landmine you stepped on, it's easier than just, see, what I'm trying to get you to understand is we can, if we have a tree to cut down of bad behavior, we can take a butter knife if we want to and try to saw at that tree, Right? Or we can take a chainsaw and cut the whole thing down. Or even better, we can take it from the root and uproot it. And I'm telling you that our society is a microwave society. We want to come in and slap a quick answer. And both sides of the spectrum do this mostly. So the church does this by giving churchy answers and just trying to tell you to be more spiritual and to give you a scripture to get over it. But also the world does this and we're becoming more and more dependent on psychotropic drugs just to slap some answers, slap a quick fix on this kid because and, and diagnose them with oppositional defiance disorder and ADHD. And listen, there's a time and place for all that. But where is this behavior coming from? And instead of medicating, do you understand the disproportionate amount of foster children that are medicated on these drugs? The problem with this is if this kid is rightly encountering injustice, rightly encountering trauma, neglect, abuse, they're reacting not because they have a disorder, but because they should react. There should be anger coming out of that kid for the injustice that happened to them. And all we do is numb it because their behavior makes us uncomfortable. So they're more palatable, but they're also easier to be continued to be abused. And so I'm saying, what if we approach this differently? Instead of a Band-Aid, instead of just pretending and putting a, a temporary solution, there's a time and place for medicine. There's a time and place for all this. But what if we can understand where did this thing come from to begin with? And love people enough to get in the trenches and go on a journey with them of healing, true healing. That is good grief. Grief that becomes good because finally you're free. Let me tell you something. Jesus said, if you want to come to him, you have to become like a little child. Now, how many of you are parents or grandparents in here? How many of you would say, you look at your kid, they're, maybe they're grown, and, and I know look, there was a little boy just waved his hand. He was a parent at five years old, okay, so he misunderstood the question. But I'm going to tell you, if you look at your kids, I don't care how old they are, they're still your baby. Raise your hand if that's you, right? You still see them when you brought them home from the hospital. Can I tell you, the Lord is like that with you. And we are so hard on our younger selves. Anybody can relate? You thought you were so much bigger when you were 16 than you were. You thought you knew so much more. And, and our, we're so hard on our younger selves that a lot of times we don't even let ourselves process what happened. Oh, that was my fault. I'm making too much of it. It was too big of a deal. We excuse what happened to us. We make a joke about it. But you know when all the, the Bible says in Proverbs that 
that laughter can conceal a heavy heart, but when the laughter stops, the grief remains. And this is why when we have family get-togethers and the siblings are joking, the adult siblings are joking, and all of a sudden someone steps on a landmine and that's not funny because it was traumatic to this kid, and then they go after the jugular for that kid, and then there's World War III on Thanksgiving, over Thanksgiving dinner. Anybody ever been there? Why? Because that wasn't funny to them. It was traumatic, and it's never actually been processed or healed. What if it didn't have to be this way anymore? What if there was a different way? What if we could uncover through the grace of God and truly heal, go on a walk within the garden in the cool of the day? This is what the Lord wants to do, that you don't have to run from grace. If you can face it head on, if you can look at it in the face with the Lord beside you, that perhaps the behavior will stop. And this is what I encountered. This is what happened to me, that at my age, when I stopped, someone asked me a question, when I asked them, why did I just eat an entire cauliflower crust pizza in one sitting? What is wrong with me? And I thought she was going to joke because I was trying to joke because this is what Melody does. Melody makes a joke for comedic relief to change the subject if I get uncomfortable. And she says, what are you trying to bury? And so I see a hand coming out of the grave like a zombie, you know, and I'm like, I don't think anything. I'm not trying to bury anything. Until I let, I sat with that question and let the Lord prod my heart. Am I trying to bury something? Is there something I'm not acknowledging? And I was up till three o'clock that morning, flipping through the pages of my life, and God started me on a journey that was almost two years ago. God started me on a journey to show me some things that I didn't even remember. I did not even remember, much less still feel like I felt Things I downplayed, joked about, said were no big deal, that were actually super traumatic and were leading to all of this behavior in me. And you know what's so beautiful? That I can stand in front of you now and say that I sleep like a baby at night with nothing needed, that I have not binged eaten in over a year. Like that the Lord is completely, and it's freedom. It's that I don't even want to or need something because the original trauma has been slowly through the process of true good grief been healed. I know you want this. I know you want this. Instead of being frustrated with yourself, get curious. So I know this is a heavy topic. I know it is. So I'm going to hopefully bring it about in a little bit of a lighthearted way. We're going to read the story, um, a whole, the whole story in Numbers chapter two, don't, 22. Don't worry, I read really fast. Um, but, and it's a lighthearted story, one of my favorites with Balaam and his donkey. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, open up to Numbers chapter 22. This is where we're going to sit for a minute. So Balak, king of Moab, sent messengers to call Balaam, son of Beor, who was living in his native land near the Euphrates River. And his message said, look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. Now, these are the Israelites, God's people. They cover the face of the earth, and they are threatening me. This is when they were wondering, and they were going to the promised land. Please come and curse these people for me, because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on any people you bless, and curses fall on people you curse. So Balaam has a reputation, a prestigious reputation. He's got a gift, um, and so powerful people are seeking out his wisdom and his gift. Verse 7, so King Balak's messengers, who were elders of Moab and Midian, set out with money to pay Balaam to place a curse on Israel. They went to Balaam and delivered Balak's message to him, stay here overnight, he said. In the morning, I'll tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. 
That night, God came to Balaam and asked him, who are these men visiting you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, because God didn't know. That's why he asked him the question. He didn't know who they were. He was like, who are these guys? I was like, I don't know. Um, so Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, he sent this message. Look, a vast horde of people has arrived in Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to go and stand against them to drive them out of the land. But God told Balaam, do not go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. Verse 13, the next morning Balaam got up and told Balak's officials, go on home, the Lord will not let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to the king and reported Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak tried again. This time he sent a larger number of even more distinguished officials, that's important, even more distinguished officials than those he had sent the first time. They went to Balaam and delivered this message to him. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Please don't let anything stop you from coming to help me. I will pay you very well. I will do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. But Balaam responded to, to Balak's messengers. Even if he were to give me this palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the Lord, uh, my God. So it sounds pretty pious there. But then he says, but stay here one night, and I'll see if the Lord has anything else to say for me. He's going to try one more time with the Lord. So that night, God comes to Balaam, and so God's sort of going to permissively let him. It's not, obviously not what he already told him what he wanted, but he keeps asking. So he said, since this men have come for you, just get up and go with them, but only do what I told you to do. Verse 21, so the next morning, this is where it gets interesting. Balaam gets up, he saddles his donkey, and he starts off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent an angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. As Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey bolted off the road into a field. But Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at the place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by, and this time it crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so Balaam beats the donkey again. Verse 26, then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. And this time when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Verse 28, then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me these three times? This is, it has to have some sort of voice. Like I can't do a Shrek voice, so that's my best. Um, it asked Balaam. Without missing a beat, you made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I'm the same donkey you've ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Such a strange exchange here. Verse 31, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. Verse 32, why did you beat your donkey those three times? This is a question now the angel of the Lord is asking. Look, I have come to block your way because you're stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would have certainly killed you by now and spared the donkey. In other words, the animal that's used to represent stubbornness, you're more stubborn than that animal, man of God. I should just wipe you out. And so what a strange story. Now, I've, I've preached on this story many times, and I've heard it preached, but I have never heard it preached from the donkey's perspective. And I was reading this, and I felt like I needed for us to just stop for a moment and to think about this from the donkey's point of view. Now, why? Number one, because I told you I'm curious. I've never heard it done, so why not, right? Okay? Number two, if the Lord obviously thought the donkey's experience was important enough to give it a voice, don't you think we should think about the donkey's experience also? 
There's some reason, something inside the donkey that needed to be shared so much that God does the supernatural and opens his mouth. And the third reason I want to look at this from the donkey's point of view is because many of you have acted like a donkey, right? Or if you prefer King James Version, you've acted, I'm not going to say it, right? All right, so let's just picture for just a moment, you are this donkey. And you see something that your old boy doesn't see. You're trying to save his life. You set boundaries. You have no voice to get it out, right? And so you're doing what you can to spare both of you, and you keep becoming a victim to this man's rage. Anybody ever felt a little bit like this donkey? You're put in an impossible situation, and now you're further injured because you're trying to do the right thing. And so the Lord opens this donkey's mouth. This donkey realizes that it's better to be beaten by Balaam than pierced by God. He's trying to save his life. Now, I want to show you these two verses as to why I'm taking this from the the donkey's perspective first, because we are going to look at Balaam. But Psalm 36, 6 says this, that the Lord cares for people and animals alike. Okay? So first of all, the Lord cared about the donkey. All right? Not just PETA cares about animals, right? The Lord cares about animals. And he wanted this donkey to express what he was feeling. But Matthew 6, 26 says this. Jesus said, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store in barns. So Jesus is bringing up animals. For your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you far more valuable to him than birds are? So I would say this. If the Lord cared about a donkey's injustice, don't you think you're more valuable than a donkey? If the Lord cared so much to give a donkey a voice to express what he was feeling, don't you think you are way more valuable that he cares about you expressing the injustices and the pain of your past? He cares about you. But you know, the Lord didn't just care about the donkey. The Lord truly cared about Balaam. He cared about it. He didn't want to wipe him out. And so I'm going to tell you as we look at this, that what we can learn from looking at this donkey is it is not healthy or is it helpful or is it spiritual to suppress pain and grief. There is nothing spiritual and there is nothing helpful about being dishonest about pain. Nothing. The grief has to go somewhere. The pain has to go somewhere. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, there is a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to laugh. And I'm going to talk about this some next week. Some of us, I think we are so scared because we've seen other people indulge in their grief and they stay there and they never get out that we're so scared to even go there. But there is a time to cry and a time to grieve. There will also be a time to laugh and a time to dance. But there is an appropriate time, and I think that we don't give this enough space in the body of Christ. We don't give it enough space, but there's a time for it, and it's appropriate. In Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you don't truly grieve, you can't be truly comforted. And so God cared about the donkey. He cares about you. How much more does he care about you? And he also cared about Balaam, and he's trying to get Balaam to see something. You're going to see in this passage, this was about Balaam opening his eyes to what he was refusing to acknowledge. That God really asks him a series of questions to get his eyes open to see what he was ignoring and not acknowledging. Can I tell you that you cannot be healed from what you don't see or what you refuse to acknowledge? 
If you don't see it, then you can't heal from it. If you don't acknowledge it, then you can't heal from it. And so the first process just today, it's just very simple. God, what am I not seeing that I need to see? Show me what my eyes are blinded from. Open my eyes to see. And I, my, my suspicion is that he's going to do that the way he does all through Scripture, through questions. He's going to inquire of you and ask you some questions. Let's look at what questions were asked to Balaam. Question one was from the donkey. The donkey asked him, what have I done to you that deserves your beating me these three times? Now, before I go into Balaam's answer, I want to make a little side note. Do you know, it's not a sign of dishonor or a lack of submission to ask questions or for clarification. And I think that there has been a teaching in the body of Christ that has crossed into spiritual abuse or abuse in general from leadership, even with, in a husband and wife dynamic, that you're not, or parents and children, you're not allowed to question me. Do what I tell you. You don't need to know. And, I'm t- and that's an insecure leader that does that. It's not rebellious or dishonoring to ask for clarification in a, in a respectful way, okay? And the Lord is saying this by opening this donkey's mouth. Obviously, the donkey loved his master. Obviously, he was trying to protect it. And, the, and God said, no, he needs to ask him, why are you doing this? Can you help me understand this? Can you please clarify for this? Because this hurts. And that's not a sin to do that. And so I want to clarify in case that teaching has been spoken over you, that it's not wrong to ask questions in the right time and space. So Balaam's answer to this is, you've made me look like a fool. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. What a telling answer. So here we get to the heart of what's going on in Balaam's head. Why are you beating me these three times? And this question leads to the big root of all this. He's got a fear of rejection. You've made me look like a fool. That's the whole thing. He doesn't want to look foolish. Here he's known in the nation, in the surrounding nations, as someone with a great gift. And he's, he's got a king and officials and distinguished people coming to pay him money, to, 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 to pull on him, to get an answer. He's got a reputation to uphold, and he doesn't want to look like a fool. And the donkey is making him look like a fool, and that's why he had this reaction. And so isn't this so telling? It's a fear of rejection. All of it. For so long, I thought greed was the reason that Balaam did this. It wasn't. It was a fear of rejection. He didn't want to look foolish. And so these are great questions to ask. Why is this promotion so important to me? What am I trying to prove? Even better, who am I trying to prove it to? These questions, what's really going on? He had a fear of rejection. Number two, the question asked from the donkey, but I'm the same donkey you've ridden all your life. Have I ever done anything like this before? In other words, don't you know my character? He's saying, I don't think this is really about me, dude. Something tells me I'm like, I'm not in this. This is not about me. You're taking this out on me. Isn't it interesting that the donkey is more of a friend than most of us are to our friends? The donkey is willing to ask and to do hard things, even if he becomes a victim of the other person's rage for doing it. The donkey is willing to be a friend who, whose love is, the wounds are better from this friend than the kisses of an enemy. This is why we need to be in relational equity with people, is because there are people that love us enough that we should 
have in our lives that see blind spots. We all have spots, blind spots we can't see, but most of us are so afraid to really speak up if we see our friends or loved ones or family doing toxic behavior and unhealthy behavior and we don't say anything because we don't want to get, in the, I don't want to get in the middle of something. But really, if we love them, we'll be honest. I don't think this is really about your husband. I don't really think this is, are you sure there's not something else going on here? I don't really think that's healthy behavior. I think you're wounding your kids. And can I tell you a great way to ask, to, to, to bring up these kind of topics when they're tough, because that's tough to share with people that we love, is to do like Jesus, do like the donkey, and pose it as a question. Why do you think that bothered you so much? Just asking our friends, where, where do you think that came from? Do you see how that's less direct and it's easier and palatable? I'm telling you, we have to be friends that are in community with one another, in healthy community, so that people can ask us tough questions and we can ask them. He's saying, we've got enough relational equity for you to trust me. How long have I been in your donkey? Your entire life? Your entire life? That's a long, t- long time, friend. Don't you know that if I'm stopping you, there's got to be a good reason. I see something you don't. Do we? Are we in community enough that we have people around us that we allow to say, hey, I don't think that's a good idea. Hey, what you're doing is not healthy. Hey, what you're doing is wounding your friend. Hey, what you're doing is wounding your kids. Hey, I think this is, this is, I love you, and that's why I'm speaking up and I'm saying this. Guys, we have to be that friend, and we have to be around those kind of friends. To be inside of healthy communities so that people can see, help us to see our blind spots. Balaam answers him, and then it says, Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord. His blind spots were opened. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. The reality is, Balaam was not angry at his donkey. It was misappropriated anger. And there are a lot of you, and you are beating the people in your life that love you the most. You are reactive on your children, on your spouse, on your church friends, on anyone who gets close to you but it's really not them you're mad at. They're caught in the crosshairs of something that happened to you a long time ago that had nothing to do with them. We see this a lot in church, in ministry, where people are reacting, but I don't really think it's me you're upset with. I think there's something else going on. In love, let me tell you that your pornography problem is not your spouse's fault. That affair was not your spouse's fault. It's not your children's fault. They're not that misbehaved. They just make you so angry, and it's their fault. It's not their fault. And until somebody has the courage to stop the insanity of the generational trauma that we keep perpetuating, we're going to keep doing this to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Saying things like, well, you didn't have it as bad as me. Yeah, you should have seen what it was like to be a kid in my house. You should have seen how my parents said it. It's not an excuse. And somebody has to stop the insanity and say, I'm not going to continue. Your grief has to go somewhere. If you don't deal with your grief, you're going to force those you love to. It has to go somewhere. And I'm telling you that some of you, the way that you're reacting, the way that you're acting, there's something else going on. And the Lord wants to reveal it so that he can heal it. Did you know that there's a group of psychologists that they can tell if you search in a search engine for pornography They can take what you specifically searched for, and they can pretty accurately predict what your childhood story was. Because most of us, 
that struggle with lust are either running from something that happened to us when we were younger or we're reenacting something that happened to us when we were younger. Subconsciously, we're not even aware we're doing it. This is why I'm saying that it's much more beneficial. Have your accountability partner. That's great. Do all those things. But listen, I'm telling you, the Lord wants to heal you from the inside out. He wants to truly take this little kid that encountered whatever that was. Maybe it wasn't big T trauma. Maybe you were humiliated in a classroom. Maybe you were never emotionally connected with your parent. Maybe there was sibling rivalry that damaged you. But I'm telling you, that little kid never got to grieve. That little kid never got to show their emotion, to process and go through the stages of grief. And until that kid inside you is heard, it's going to continue to have these tantrums. This is why 40, 50, 60-year-olds act like toddlers. Because they were one. They were kids that were never heard. And it's time you let that child come before Jesus and tell its story. If he opened up a donkey's mouth, surely he'd want to open up that child's mouth. It's so hard for us to see this because we don't have compassion for who we are. But I want to ask you this. If what happened to you, if you were to walk in the room on what happened to you, that story that's pinging in your head right now, to a child that was the age you were when the story happened, what would you think and what would you do? Would you scold the child? Would you tell the child it was their fault? Or would you love that kid and let that kid be angry and let that kid cry? And help that kid and bring that kid to Jesus. And that's all you have to do. I'm telling you. It's time that we allow this stuff to come up. Not so that we have to sit and relive the whole experience. The first time we lived it, we felt alone. This time we come through it, Jesus is right with us. It's a different ball game with the comforter right there beside us. But if we don't deal with it, we'll force those we love to deal with it. Because it's misappropriated grief. And the last question worship team can come up. This is from the angel this time. And he says, why did you beat your donkey those three times? Look, I've come to block your way because you're stubbornly resisting me. Then Balaam confessed to the angel, I've sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. So if Balaam really wasn't mad at the donkey, who was Balaam mad at? Now, we don't know where Balaam got this fear of rejection from. It doesn't tell us that backstory, that origin story of Balaam. But we do know, bottom line, it wasn't the donkey. It wasn't the person that was trying to stop him. It wasn't even the situation. It was God. Balaam was raging against God. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and bowed in submission. Balaam didn't want to see, didn't want to know. He just wanted this fix. This power will make me feel better. This validation will make me feel better. I've got to have this. I've got to have this. I've got to have this. What grief really is, is deep disappointment. I can't, ha I can't let you have this, son. I can't give you what you're asking for, Balaam. And what's so beautiful is that when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Balaam, listen to what he says. He starts to prophesy. Instead of giving a curse, he gives a blessing. And he says, this is the message of Balaam, son of Beor, the message of the man whose eyes see clearly. He was able to see something he couldn't see before. The message of the one who hears the words of the Lord, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. This means I see it and I submit to it. I see him. Now he starts to prophesy about Jesus Christ that will come, the Messiah that will come. 
but not here and now. I perceive him, but not far in the distant future. A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. This is a messianic prophecy of Jesus to come. Now, why would Balaam start prophesying about Jesus right now? This is the tenderness of God. God is saying, son, I can't let you curse these people. I'll help you through whatever you're trying to process, but I, I can't let you curse these people. There's a Messiah coming from these people, and we can't curse what God has blessed. There's one who's going to come forth, and he'll heal that fear of rejection. He'll heal that heart. He'll take that sin. There's a bigger purpose. Do you see the tenderness of God showing him eternity? Showing him where God was in the midst of the pain. The tragic thing about Balaam is that even though he saw and right then submitted, we find out in Revelation that he just goes straight to King Balak after this, and he says, hey, if you'll teach the women to go in and to intermarry with the Israelites, they'll bring their gods with them and God will curse the Israelites themselves. And that's exactly what happened. And so Balaam dies in war. Balaam could not deal with not impressing Balak. Do you see this? He had to find a way. If God wouldn't let him do it, he was going to find a back door. He was going to find, but he couldn't just face the disappointment. He couldn't bow with eyes wide open and give it to God. He couldn't surrender. Because his fear of rejection was bigger than his love for the Lord. And I'm telling you, if you don't face grief head on, you will run from it. You will run from it. You will run from it. But it will chase you down and catch you. There is a time and a space when we have to come to God. And what you're going to encounter as you let the Lord, we're going to let the Lord come and speak. God, what do you show me? Show me. And he's going to set some things in your lap. Have you ever heard about grief stages? Some of them you're going to be angry about. And anger is a normal, healthy part of grief. You should be angry. You could be angry and sin not, but you should be. And you're going to cast that care on him. But if you don't acknowledge it, you can't give it to him. If you don't invite him in, he's a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks. Unless we say, God, search my heart, he'll just stand on the outside. He's not knocking it down. The Lord wants to come in, and some of this is just disappointment. And can I tell you, he's a good father, and he can handle if you pound on his chest. I don't understand. He will take it. He can handle the teenager that slams the door in his face, and he'll stay in that house and love you anyway. He can handle your tough questions. But you got to bring them to him. He won't leave you there. He wants to heal the deepest parts of you once and for all. He wants to make your grief good. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past messages. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and share. For more content, to connect with us, or if you'd like to support this ministry by giving, visit our website, iheartchurch.online. We love you and have a great day.